and I basically copied Hulk Hogan and Mean Gene Okerlund against Mr. Fuji and Georgie Animal Steel, and it worked out wonderfully. Great. It's good to hear success stories in your life. Yeah, and it's very, it, it can be frustrating because you want to have that good match because when you have a bad match, you start to think things like, gosh, I hope I don't get in a car wreck and that was my last match. You always want to have a good match as your last match. Right. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett. Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars in Conversations brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared a ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Larry Zabisco to a group of roller derby girls. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publication and has openly cried while listening to the Adele song, Hello. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, the crybaby. I mean, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Listen, I don't care. I knew you were going to bring this up, so I prepared a bit on it. Yes. I don't care. A lot of people, it's Cats in the Cradle from Harry Chapin. You know, just it just brings it, gets it out. gets me. Of, I'm a father. Good, good. Gets you. Uh, but the one that really gets me, I don't know if you've heard this from David Geddes, uh, last game of the season which is uh, the parentheses blind man in the bleachers. No, I never heard oh that. Oh, my God. If that does not make you cry, you do not have a soul. Really? Yes. You'll have to play that one for it's me. It's incredible. Yeah, so uh, I had never heard the song, you know, like I'd heard it as a punchline, Hello from Adele, and when she was on Saturday Night Live, and like I sat and listened to the song from beginning to end, it just hit me right in the feels. Yeah. And I don't care. That's I, fine. I, don't, I, I don't like care. that. I'm, I'm, listen. Hit me right in the feels. That uh, hit it, me so hard that I had to message <laughs> the ex-girlfriend. It made me think of just to reach out and say, "Hey, I just hope you're doing okay. I just want you to know I'm on the couch bawling, listening to Adele." She just sent sitting back. next to my current girlfriend. No, no. Oh, nobody was home. Fair enough. Um, but it was just funny. She's just like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm fine." She's like, "You're just a dork." I'm like, "Yeah, okay, fair enough." And you're like, "And I'm done. See you next time." Oh no, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was I wasn't thirsty. It was just right. You know, some people would view that as some like uh, one of those uh, hookup calls. Right, but I had already like I I had talked to this person recently, so sure. it wasn't like fair enough. It wasn't totally out of the blue and hey, baby, what's up? Because nothing's more attractive than a grown man crying. Crying. Um, Seconded only by this happened to me one time in a bar and somebody dropped a bottle and I was wearing shorts and it cut my leg. How visible bleeding is such a turnoff to a lot of people. Is it really? Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm just I asking. No, your wife seems kind Listen, of vanilla, but been, if you're yeah, into cutting, I've been, that's I've been fine. married for uh, 16 years, so I don't know what. what that's why she always wears the long sleeves. Okay. Yes. That's fine. Wow. That's fine. 
Okay, then. On that who are, who note, are we to judge? All God's children need loving. Yes. That's... If there was a song that uh, tears me up, uh, it's a uh, song Cotton Eye Joe by the Rednecks. You're lying now. <laughs> yes. Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I love the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, and actually, uh, if you could read my mind. Oh, really? That by one Gordon gets, Lightfoot? Yes, that nice. one gets me. Nice. Um, and, uh, and then one last one that gets me is uh, Roy Clark. Um, I forget. I'm going to forget the uh, when I was young. Or something. Oh, okay. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I like I like Big in Vegas from uh, Buck Owens. Yeah, that's good, too. That gets me in the feels, too. I still... Uh, I still DVR Hee Haw every Saturday night. It's worth it. Buck it, Owens was amazing. It's a great show. Yeah. Kyle, have you ever seen Hee Haw? No. Really? Oh, yeah, I believe it. You're young. You talk about Star Wars. But the song all day Bakersfield, long. where he rips off the guy in jail. Yeah. Took $20, but left him his watch and his house key. Yes. There you go. Good stuff. Kyle can tell you anything about Star Wars, but when it comes to old television, Hee Haw. Well, Hee Haw was kind of like the, the cantina, except everybody had bibs on. Yes. Well, also, <laughs> yeah, green like that. There were also a lot of a very curvy women that never ever got naked, no matter how hard you wished it. True. And it was a very popular show, all about country music, and it was really popular on the East Coast. But that's enough about Hee Haw. Uh, we should do an episode on Grit Magazine. <laughs> that would be kind of cool too. We'll do. That'll be one of our intros. I follow them on Facebook. I get articles from it. Do you really? It's fun stuff. You know, speaking of grit and determination. Yes. Uh, Vern Gagne had a lot of grit and determination. When he put on this show. Yes, uh, Super Clash 3. Um, sometimes on our segues just are beautiful. Right, isn't it great? Yeah, too bad this isn't one of them. So, live, Chicago, Illinois, December 13th, 1988, UIC Pavilion. We went over this last week. Paid attendance, 1,600 in a venue that held about 10,000. It's December in Chicago. Yes, on a, yeah. on a Wednesday. Yes. So uh, what are you expecting to get? Your host for the evening, Lee Marshall, Ray Stevens, and Vern Gagne. Yes. Kind of uh, a, a fun group to have there. I like, I've always liked Lee Marshall. Yeah, Stagger Lee is very good. Uh, Vern Gagne is interesting because he, I mean, we go off on tangents. But he goes on, off on tangents, but it's not so much going anywhere as him trying to figure out what he's saying. Right. I, I don't, uh, maybe I don't want to go in that direction because I don't want to make fun of the dementia that he suffered from that caused considerable grief for his family. Yeah, for you sure. Know, later on. where and, they, and other families. Right, exactly. And that led to his family having to care for him. Right. You know, so that's, I'm not looking forward to that. Nobody looks forward to, you know, their, their parents going on a decline like that. So. You know, all the respect in the world to the Ganya families for everything we did. Having get that out of the way, we're going to make fun of them for this night. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, so boom. Um, yeah, we, we, we can mention it in the matches later, but there's several times where Vern starts talking and you're just kind of like, where are you taking this? Right. And I have to say, too, another announcer that I think is great watching this, Larry Nelson. Yes. Was, was out of his mind on this show. Yes. He was so exuberant. And was really just take that. Like, there's a lot of like, it just felt like this. What he felt this was this was it. This was the shot. This was the thing. And uh, he just goes for it. He uh, did a lot of cocaine too, by his own admission. You don't say. Uh, wrote a wrote a pretty decent book. Oh, really? Yeah. 
I'd be interested in reading that yeah, one. Yeah, it gives a, um, you know, I liked it because it's got his career as a DJ, but then gets into the behind the scenes, you know, operations of the AWA. And it was actually my first introduction to like the promo day. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Everybody showed up on this day to get their check, but then we had to sit around for nine hours in gear while they cut promos for all their markets. It's uh, like, it. oh, so that was my first thought of how how the business part of it is put together and like, Oh, okay. I see how they get all this and everything. Sure, no, and it, yeah. But then it was funny because as the years went on, suddenly, you know, promo day got less and less and no, we'll just have one. Like he used to, when he started there, he was working five days a week, but at the end they were trying to keep all of his work to one day a week. Yeah. You know, so that consolidating. kind of interesting. Well, so um, wound up, wound up leaving, uh, because he got a drunk driving ticket, and so he sold all of his stuff and left town and went down to Florida. And that was it. Yeah, and that's where he uh, got married again, another career as a DJ, but passed away at some point. Oh, Larry Nelson's dead. Yes. I did not know that either. I met him out in Las Vegas for Cauliflower Alley in 02 when I went out there, but I didn't know he was going to be there because he was selling his book, and I'm like, I already own your book. Um, I would have brought it, so he signed a, a card for me so I could put it in the book. Cool. Nice guy. Yeah, sure. Nice enough. Yeah, he you got he got he got his part. How much do you think Kyle paid for an autograph of Billy D. Williams at the Star Wars convention? Thirty five dollars. Higher. Forty. Forty. All and right. And that was a discount from a, a guy that had a cane that couldn't stand in the line. How much was it initially? Sixty five. Sixty five wow. for Billy D. Williams. Wow. All right, and he gets it. And Larry Nelson was free, right? Yeah. Huh. Nice enough guy. Yes, Kyle uh, went to the wrong convention. One of my favorite memories from Cauliflower Alley was looking at the, the the photo collages that they had out there, and I was looking at the women's wrestling exhibit, and all of a sudden this one guy came up to me, and I recognize him now as he's in the uh, that women's wrestling documentary, Lipstick and Dynamite. Yes. But he didn't have a mustache then because he starts asking me if I like women wrestling and what pictures I have and starts to get the sweat on his upper lip, and I'm just like, I'm going to go walk away now. Yeah. Like, First time he'd ever met me, but he was, oh, you're looking at this? You must be interested. <laughs> like, you're like, I'm looking at it all, pal. You're just go away. It's kind of slowly creep off to the side. Yes. It's that uh, I like the Tin Man from A Christmas Story. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait in line. Go away. I'm busy. Don't, uh, don't talk to me. I'm thinking. Anyhow. Uh, Mondo Guerrero was there, who's in the first match. Yeah, absolutely. As we get into the first match on the show, uh, we're talking about it's a six-man tag match where we have... Uh, the Guerreros, we have uh, Chavo, Hector, and Mondo going up against a very young Cactus Jack and the Rock and Roll RPMs made up of Tommy Lane and Mike Davis. Yes. Uh, I've always liked the, the the name Rock and Roll RPMs. Yes. I think yeah. it's a cool name. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, Mike Davis came out of Florida, um, so came up through that system. Journeyman wrestler later went on to become the Snake in Global Yep. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the scaffold. Was that the scaffold match or the bungee jump match? I don't even know. What? I don't know that one. Wow. I will be writing that down. Yeah, I'll Google Google out. that up. The bungee cord match in in global. Um, the thing uh, that this- Tommy Lane and Mike Davis. Tommy Lane, a shorter worker. Allegedly, these guys were in Memphis for a long time, and the story I read was they lost their job because Tommy Lane started messing around with Jerry Lawler's girlfriend. Oh, really? So that made me laugh. Uh. When kind of looking at the match and my initial thoughts, the Guerreros are just ping-ponging all over the place. It's what they do. It's what they do. And the crowd is super into it, and it 
completely seems like the RPMs and Cactus Jack have no idea how to work it. Yes. There's a, there is definitely a, a look uh, to the heels in this match where it's just like they don't know what to do and they're just kind of going along for the ride. Exactly. Uh, well, the Guerreros come from that, that wrestling, strong wrestling tradition. Uh, their father taught them all, if you can work, you'll always have a job, much like what Bob Armstrong did with his kids. So they had the Lucha style combined with the American style pro wrestling. We were able to do all that stuff. I believe this match might have been the first time like a moonsault body block was done. Yeah. Oh, and the crowd is just like, what? Yeah. Like, it is really, it is crazy. Um, but uh, just a chance to kind of highlight the Guerreros in this match completely. Okay. Another thing that stands out is a uh, future AWA Tag Team Champion, Mike Enos, as the referee. Yes, that was very common in Ganya days uh, to put the younger wrestlers under the shirt because then they would also learn how to work. Um, there's also... So when did the Wrecking Crew become a thing? If this is 88. 89. So they were. it was right around the Yeah, they were there. like tag team champions in 89. Okay, gotcha. But so. like the, the Nasty Boys, I've seen them both as referees. Um, I always saw the Iron Duke, Jim Mitchell. He was a referee, and he had that weird uh, stub hand. Yeah. He'd wear the glove when he wrestled, but didn't when he refed, so I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, it was a bit But, weird. like, Bob Windham was a referee before he was Blackjack Mulligan. You know, a lot of guys. Kazro Viziri was a referee. With it being so close to them actually getting a push, I, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. Nobody would know the difference. And we're looking back at it and see this, and we see it that way. So I guess... At the time, it didn't really matter. But I, the Wrecking Crew is one of those teams that I feel like before their WWE run or WWF run as the Beverly Brothers, I feel like they were around for a long time. But knowing that the AWA ends up folding up in 90, right. 91, th- their run wasn't that big. Well, their run wasn't that big, but then they went down, they got into Georgia for a while as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew too. Oh, okay. So they did a mass gimmick down there. I also feel and like that made me feel on the inside when I saw them come in. It's like I know who I know those guys. guys. Yeah, right. But I also maybe so also cool. I like it better back, than anyone else. I wonder if it was like you in Star Wars. Yes, <laughs> seeing the uh, same episodes of AWA and ESPN over and over again because they uh-huh. aired those quite a bit uh-huh. might have been that feeling of oh god, these guys again. Yeah, that could be it. You know, that it was just like it was forever. For me, it was always the uh, retirement match of Vern Gagne. They would always show that. Yep. And just like, oh, Vern's going to come here and give us commentary on this match. And it's just like, you guys are just sitting in a studio going over footage so you don't have to tape anything. Tape anything, right. Whatever gets it done nice and cheap. Um, Tons of high spots, like we said, from the Guerreros. Chavo hits the moonsault on Tommy Lane, gets the pin. That's the match. That first match, too, uh, that was a CWA uh, or versus uh, WCCW match. Sure. So, um, sure. For something taking place in Chicago, some new faces probably for that Chicago. Oh, team. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, takes us to our in the second match on the show, which uh, world class light heavyweight title match. Oh, which is funny because at one time Cactus Jack did hold the light heavyweight title in Texas. Really? Yeah. Hmm. He sure. looked really young. Yeah, well, he was. I mean, he definitely yeah. was. Uh, not... He was thin and more like wrestling gear instead of clothes. Right, and it was uh, that, uh, yeah, he had in the, the, the Cactus Jack that we know it wasn't fully developed at that point in more ways than one. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> 
John Jack Tunney was a Canadian wrestling promoter known worldwide for his appearances on WWF television as the promotion's figurehead president, suspending wrestlers, stripping them of titles, and ordering matches. But Jack's story in wrestling started long before his tenure with the Fed. Tunney's father, John Tunney Sr., and his uncle, Frank Tunney, became the promoters of Toronto's Queensbury Athletic Club in the 30s. John Tunney Sr. died in 1940 at age 32, and Frank became the sole promoter. As a young man, John Tunney Jr. worked for the promotion alongside Frank, Norm Kimber, Frank Eierst, Ed Noonan, and wrestlers Whipper Watson and Pat Flanagan. The offices were across the street from the famed Maple Leaf Gardens. Later, Tunney would run his operation out of the gardens itself. After Frank Tunney's death on May 10, 1983, Jack and his cousin Eddie Tunney, who was Frank's son, took control of the promotion. Jack moved into the spotlight as the front man for the promotion, while Eddie had a low public profile. At the time, the Toronto office was based in partnership with Charlotte, North Carolina-based Jim Crockett Promotions. When the promotional wars heated up between Crockett and Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation, Crockett felt he could no longer spare his top wrestlers for shows in Toronto. The Toronto cards got progressively weaker through 1983 and 1984, dwindling down to audiences of 3,000 for some shows. Johnny Weaver was the primary booker for the shows, with Leo Burke and his brother as the lead heels, and Don Kernodal as the main babyface. In June of 1984, Jack and Eddie switched allegiances from the NWA to the WWF. They began promoting only WWF cards, becoming another stop on the WWF circuit. This maneuver made Toronto a WWF city and was instrumental in consolidating the company's power base in Canada. Following the WWF takeover, the name Maple Leaf Wrestling continued to be used for the WWF's Canadian TV program, which was a staple of Hamilton Station's CHCH TV for many years. Tunney would promote 40 or more WWF shows per year, making him a very important man in the expansion of the WWF and keeping WCW out of key Canadian markets well into the 90s. Soon, wrestling promotions across Canada fell on hard times as Tunney helped McMahon take over their territories. All-Star Wrestling in Vancouver closed down. The AWA stopped coming into Manitoba, and Stu Hart's Stampede promotion began eroding until he too was forced to sell to McMahon. In the summer of 1984, the WWF named Tunney its storyline president. This made Tunney known to fans in the United States and abroad. The title was ceremonial only, as he held no backstage power beyond that of a regional promoter. As such, his main roles were that of a storyline authority figure to announce major decisions or events on television. Some of his major television appearances included suspending Andre the Giant after he failed to show for a series of matches against Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy. On Piper's Pit, reading proclamations and giving trophies to Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, for being WWF Heavyweight Champion for three years and attaining a 15-year undefeated streak, respectively. He suspended referee Danny Davis for life after officiating a series of controversial matches where he favored the heels. In 1987, in response to the kidnapping of the British Bulldogs canine mascot Matilda, indefinitely suspending the Islanders until Matilda was found. He stripped the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase of the WWF Heavyweight Championship after acquiring the title from new champion Andre the Giant in exchange for a huge financial payoff. 
He restricted demolition to two active members following the 1990 Survivor Series. He was also instrumental in distorting the real-world title belt of Ric Flair in televised promos when he began performing for the WWF in the fall of 91. He prohibited Jake the Snake Roberts from bringing his snake into the ring after a televised incident in 1991 where Roberts allowed a viper to bite the arm of Randy Macho Man Savage. He also refused to take action against Lex Luger over his controversial forearm smash finisher. Tunney was rarely involved in physical confrontations with wrestlers. One exception was in the fall of 1988 when Bad News Brown confronted Tunney on the set of The Brother Love Show and demanded a WWF title shot against then-champion Savage. When Brown began implying that Tunney and Savage's manager, Miss Elizabeth, were involved in an affair, suggesting that Elizabeth was, quote, doing favors, unquote, for Tunney to protect Savage from sure defeat, Tunney began scolding Brown for making such a claim, poking his finger in his chest to assert his authority. Brown then grabbed Tunney by his necktie and warned him to never, ever touch him again. The peak of Tunney's WWF reign was WrestleMania VI at Toronto Sky Dome on April 1st, 1990. It was the first WrestleMania held outside of the U.S., and the show drew over 67,000 people. In the main event, the Ultimate Warrior cleanly pinned Hulk Hogan to win the WWF world title, and Tunney announced on television there would be no rematch. In the 90s, Tunney's appearances on television and live events grew less frequent. One of his final major appearances came in early 1994 when he declared Bret Hart and Lex Luger co-winners of the 94 Royal Rumble after it could not be determined whose feet hit the floor first. Both men would be granted separate matches versus WWF heavyweight champion Yokozuna for the title at WrestleMania 10. In 1995, McMahon chose to run the shows in Toronto without any involvement from the Tunnies. The final show at the Gardens was held on September 17, 1995. That year, Tunney was forced out of the WWF, after which he retired and disappeared from the wrestling scene. Following Tunney's departure, Gorilla Monsoon was given the role of on-screen WWF president. Jack Tunney died Saturday, January 24, 2004, in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. An employee, personality, and figurehead in the WWF for over 10 years, it is notable that not a single person from the WWE attended Tunney's funeral. So we got the world-class light heavyweight title match, Jeff Jarrett versus Eric Embry. Uh, what's your familiarity with Eric Embry? He's incredible. T tell me a little bit about oh, him. Oh, uh, well, Eric Embry, my first exposure to him was when he was in Southwest with Ken Timms, and they did, uh, I'm not sure if they were the Hollywood Blondes, but they had like the blonde bumping tag team gimmick, and they were both just bump machines, and it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, but then I, I understand he was like a journeyman, had been around for a while, got over to Texas, took over the book. And then once he was in charge, that's when he started to get fat and sloppy, but always had a ton of charisma right? and could, and could bump and was a, a very good worker, a lot of charisma, good talker. Um, I believe 
got in a car accident and that led him to retiring and uh, either has a pizza restaurant or owns a series of pizza chains in like Florida. Okay. In like the Panhandle area, I think. Eric Embry to me always falls into that weird, I don't want to say maybe a second tier of wrestler. Sure. uh, Kind of in that Austin Idol, Eric Embry, uh, that they weren't quite... um, large, uh, didn't make it into the big fed, so to speak. But, uh, you know, like, but they also had, they they didn't have a look for the fed, right? The fed obviously wanted you on steroids. He seems like, but Embry, did he never worked in the Carolinas? Oh, I'm sure he was there at some point. At some point he did. But I mean, all these guys, they, you know, traveled all over and who knows what deal got set up. Right. Uh, yeah, you can come in, but I can only use you in jobs. And they'd use that as a, you know, a cooling off point before going to somewhere else. Or like Dutch Mantello, I said he had like his next two places laid out whenever he wrestled somewhere. So, right. you know, they all, they all pass through at some time. Well, and when you look at this, this match is where we start to see the trend starting to happen with that strange crowd reaction because yeah. Embry starts the match as a heel mm-hmm. and for no apparent reason, or you're okay, giving. Go ahead. You th- no, go I ahead. don't. I didn't see it. F- finish there, your statement. Was finish. there some point in it that all of a sudden the crowd starts cheering him? And is it just because Jarrett is so bland as a babyface at that point? Well, Jeff Jarrett suffered from the same problems as Vern Gagne, and that he was the owner's son. Right now, you mean Greg Gagne? Yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne. You know, father yes. son. But. A lot of people feel that Jarrett was also overpushed and everything in uh, in Tennessee. So the few people that followed the promotions knew of this this backlash against Jarrett. And plus, at the point, Jarrett had the the long blonde hair, young pretty kid. A lot of guys aren't going to like him because he's pretty, right? You know, especially in Chicago where it's you know. On a Wednesday night. On a Wednesday night where everybody's drunk and they just chanting, we want blood. They, they turned on Jared because he was a pretty boy and they were trying to book, it, book him as equals. I did like, I do like the, the structure of this match. Yeah. Uh, I like the, the spot in the beginning with all the reversals. Yes. I thought that was very good. You can see how they, you know, they built up the story very nicely. Whenever Jared went for his comebacks, he would always go back to his shoulder. I mean, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Right. No, it's a solid match. It's just, it's, uh, it is interesting how the crowd ends up playing that factor because ultimately Embry getting the babyface pop in this match uh-huh. is one of the things that leads him to his babyface turn going moving forward from that point. Sure. It, hey, it, it just it, it kind of was. Okay. You know? okay. The other thing, too, to, to point out to this is that uh, Jarrett comes into this match as the champion uh, because he had just he previously beat Eric Embry in Texas for the title. And... That was the showing of that goodwill between promotions of the, hey, we'll give the Memphis guy the world-class light heavyweight title, but then we'll have Embry win it back at the big show. But that's that goodwill of, like, we're willing to, you know, take the loss or whatnot to show that we're all in this together. So it is uh, uh, it is a good match, I guess, structurally. Everything works out fine. It's just interesting how all of a sudden at the end Embry's walking around with the belt and the crowd's cheering who the person who clearly at the beginning of the match started out as the heel. Well, he was the heel, but they just saw a title change. They saw a good match. Um, 
I do have a note here about Jarrett wearing the long tights without trunks, and that's just a look that just bothers me sometimes. In yeah. Wrestling. You need, I'm used to that. There needs to be some. Needs to be trunks. Yeah, there needs to be something. Right? Yeah. Kind of tie it all together. Michael P.S. Hayes is guilty of that too, but we'll get to that in a second. Yes. Um, next up, the other half of the um, Minnesota Wrecking Crew Part 2, the. Ah, uh, yes. The Destruction Crew, Wayne Bloom, and yep, and uh, our good friend, a former opponent for Derek St. Holmes, Handsome Jimmy Valiant. Uh, notice he was handsome here because he was coming from Tennessee. Yes. Although Jerry uh, Jimmy Valiant had been in the AWA several times, including fighting Ganya for the title in Chicago. Is this? Would you consider this match at this point was Valiant uh, coming? With the Memphis crowd, or was he in AWA at this point? Uh, he was probably in Hammond and drove in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's about all I can say. Right. No, that's about it. But uh, they uh, they had a barn burner. Yeah, uh, a 23-second barn burner. Yeah, yeah, it was um, really good. And it, Including you know, Valiant kissing people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all it was was uh, Wayne Bloom attacks him from behind, uh, falls victim to a devastating elbow drop. Yep. And you have 23 seconds in. And uh, there was really no real point to that match except to get a payday for Valiant. Although nobody got paid. Yeah, that's right. And but I'm sure payday. this was Jarrett wanting to throw a longtime employee a bone. Right. Hey, you're local. Let's let's do this up in front of your family. Yeah. We don't really have a lot of time. Just do your stuff. That's okay, brother. You're gonna pay me the same either way. Right. You know? Exactly. Get get it. Get what you can in Bro- 23 seconds, brother man. Go. Right. Uh, so from there. Uh, we're talking about the uh, world-class Texas title match. Is there any distinction with world-class Texas title, the world-class heavyweight title? I mean, I guess... Yes, the... How was it? The American heavyweight title became the world title, and then the Texas heavyweight title was like their intercontinental strap. Okay, gotcha. I was never sure on the structure of that. And we're looking at another one of my favorites, another one of those guys I consider one of those solid um middle of the road uh middle of the road doesn't sound right like b level people know about him iceman king parsons versus yes. brickhouse brown raggedy rudy poo yeah and uh a, a phrase stolen by the rock right yeah yeah uh, has the rock ever admitted that oh yeah okay i i w- did not know that yeah there's... and at this point too this is another one of those where they try to do like the uh Cross promotion. This was yeah, world class. Tennessee versus, versus Texas. Yeah, and uh, uh, always liked Brickhouse Brown. Uh, wondered why he wasn't better, but I mean, now that I know more about wrestling, it's like, oh, maybe he just didn't have it. Uh, this is a good example of what we we're talking about earlier. How uh, Stagley Marshall says these two men do not like each other, and it takes Vern. I swear to God, it takes like ten minutes for him to go off on a rant about Hans Schmidt. Yes, about how <laughs> they didn't like each other either. Right, it's like. Okay, Vern, that's that's good. Uh, one thing in this match that I noticed, like I kind of saw it before I was a wrestler, and this made me, you know, before I was a worker, and this made me think, and now I see it, where they go to go into a headlock spot, and Iceman Parsons, like, goes up for a lockup, but Brickhouse doesn't put his hands up. Mm-hmm. And then Iceman puts himself in the headlock position. I was just like, wait a minute, like that... You know, it just, if you were looking for it, it's like, wait a minute, that something was wrong there. Right. It didn't look right. You know, so that got me thinking about, you know, everything that was made there. Uh, the referee for this match is the really skinny Illinois commission ref named Mike Figueroa. 
Okay. Now, I have a connection into the uh, Illinois Athletic Commission through a father-in-law of a local worker. He was a policeman. He was also the timekeeper for the commission before it wound down. So he can give me like behind the scenes stuff about all of these guys and how it works. It was really good. But yeah, Mike Figueroa was the really the really skinny ref, and it's funny seeing him in matches against like when he's like doing the Road Warriors and stuff like that. It's like, oh my god, they're gonna kill this guy. They're gonna slaughter him. But no, 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 no. He was good. Uh, let's see. There was there was a screw up in the middle. Like a backdrop screw up, but they okay. covered it. So I thought that was good. I didn't like uh, both guys wearing blue. Yeah, right. You know, because that makes them a tag team. I did notice in this match something I didn't see that uh, Iceman was a lefty. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't notice that. That um, going back to the the. Oh, they also did the goofy. And, and I hate it when baby faces have to do this because it makes them look stupid. Where they go down for the one, two, but then they think they won, so they got to get up. I won. One, I'm celebrating. Right. And it's just like, uh. Right. It just doesn't seem like you're good at your job. Yeah. Yeah. Happens. Like, you, I mean, like, I can see you selling for a second and then going back to it, but to continue to celebrate. Right. Uh, when the ref is like grabbing your hand and be like, wait, you yeah, didn't you win. Didn't and you're win. Still like, like, I'm not paying attention no, to what you're No, no, I'm in my thing. I'm in my thing, man. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Iceman goes for the gimmick and pops him one, two, three. Right. Yeah, not. I mean, not a bad match. Yeah, it was what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Now this next one is the doozy. Okay. This is the uh, mixed six-person tag match. Uh, this one is rough. This was. It was bad on so many levels. Yes. I mean, <laughs> this it doesn't make any. It's not sense. Despina Montegas bad. No, but this is. I mean the. They changed the rules multiple times in this match. Uh, no, they did not. I, I know what you're going at, but the, the the announcer screwed up. Is that what it was? Yeah, allegedly okay. it was the mixed match between... Uh, bad Company. B, excuse me. B-A-double-D, Bad Company. Sorry. And Medusa Michelli going against the Top Guns. Yes. Uh, Derek yeah. Dukes, Ricky Rice. Is this Derek Dukes in this yes. one? Okay, yes. Derek Derek Starfire Dukes. Yes. Who I liked because he was a Derek. You know, whatever. <laughs> right. uh, and Wendy Richter, mm-hmm. who's coming, <laughs> wondering what happened to her career. No, yeah, right. She knows. Um, no, she got she got blackballed by the WWE because she wouldn't. They tried to pull a fast one on her, and she called him on it, and boom, she was gone. So, right. So that's fine. But uh, so, what are the stipulations then? Uh, who's the champs? It's bad company. Are the bad champs. company are the tag champs? And Wendy Richter has the women's title. Right. So it's a mixed match ostensibly, but the men can only the mes- wrestle the men, and the women can only wrestle the women. And if the men win, like if uh, the champ, the male tag team champs get pinned, bad company, they lose the title. Correct. But if Wendy Richter gets pinned she loses the title to medusa michelli so it wasn't okay so that's where the announcer went bad because the announcer says kyle your head's gonna explode from this one if any team member gets pinned then the belt goes to the other team so if so if uh bad company pins one of the top guns then wendy richter would lose her title to medusa and vice versa. Yeah, it was just, it, they tried to do something, but again, they did it very old school. 
Uh, they didn't get into the intergender matches that we're having today, and that's a separate episode on if those should be done and how they need to be done. But they they kept it, like, I believe uh, on the St. Louis DVDs, there's a similar match where it's a mixed tag, but if the woman tags, you know, the man can only mess, wrestle the man, the women can only wrestle the women. They right. Didn't, they didn't want to cross those lines. Do you remember the uh, original Top Guns where it was Ricky Rice and Jean-Paul? Or John Paul. Uh, very, very <laughs> I made briefly. It, French. it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't French. Uh, very briefly. I know these names more from seeing them. Like I saw them on TV once or twice, but I've seen them in like old uh, pro wrestling torch newsletters that okay. I used to get. Like so, they were like around the area. And again, that was in my education of the the layers of the business and how it worked. Right. Again, where I grew up, there was no indie wrestling, so I didn't understand that this. You know scene was around all i knew of was somewhere up in minnesota there's wrestling right so uh so ricky rice and john paul team up and they're the top guns yeah they are and somehow through Vern's clouded eyes he does finally realize from enough people telling him that like this john paul is the shits yes so he he gets rid of uh john paul and he brings in Derek dukes yes who is Equally as horrible. Yeah, he is all right. He was pretty bad. And the fun fact about uh, Derek Dukes when it all comes down to it is that uh, Derek Dukes is the one that goes on. Uh, he becomes a boxer. Yes, and I remember reading about this. And he takes the dive for Mark Gastineau. Yeah. And it's terrible. You can see that on YouTube, by the way. And it's super obvious. And it one of the things that they say, uh, well, one of many things that helped kill the credibility of boxing Yes, I knew, I believe his name was Ray Webby, claimed to be involved in that whole setup. Yeah. He was a satellite person. Anybody from Minnesota knows exactly who I'm talking about. It was like a satellite person around the business, somehow <clears throat> claimed, claimed he helped train the Road Warriors to help get them their job or whatever, had been around the business for years, so everybody knew who he was, took my phone number like, a dozen times saying he was going to call me with big things coming. It's just like, yeah, okay, Ray, whatever. We're just, we're just going to do this. Uh, he since passed away, but so I knew some people involved in that. Uh, Derek Starfire Dukes being an African American was also in an angle with Colonel De Beers, Yes. Which was, uh, what loser gets painted match. Yes. Have you heard this one, Kyle? The loser gets painted. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I just read recently. I don't know if that match ever actually happened. They might have just cut the promos for it. Sure. But still. Pretty crazy. Pretty pretty cutting-edge stuff there from the AWA. Who do you think, if you were looking at this match, who was the most successful person involved in the match? Medusa Michelli. Wrong. Okay. You the manager. Diamond oh, Dallas Page. Diamond Dallas Page. <laughs> you, uh, whatever. I'm just saying. Go ahead, be oh, right. That's I'm fine. just I'm just joking around. I just didn't know if you realized that Diamond Dallas Page was the manager. Yeah, yeah. I actually liked company. him as a manager. And uh And at that point he was like fifty eight. Sure. <laughs> liked one time when Kyle he had liked a, he had a whip and he had the diamond dolls and he uh like had the the song Bad Company queued up to the drum part and ladies I said now boom 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 yeah, yeah. you know, it's just that was awesome. You can actually see it when he's out there. Like I mean he has the personality of that uh but it's weird because it's you can tell he's not refined yet it's like he's trying to get in as many words as possible right like you see him in the promos his his promo style isn't 
Right. Yeah, he's a, he's a little bit erratic. Yes. He kind of has that uh, Paul Dangerly feel, too, like that early in the business erratic yes. nature about him. Uh, the other thing is paid for his own flight to get in. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember reading that in a, like, that's how Vern, he got booked for Vern. I'll pay, I'll pay my own tickets. He was involved in the nightclub business on the East Coast. So, like, who knows where his money came from. Yeah. Um, this match is, uh, pardon my language, a clusterfuck. Yes. And, um. Well, it's weird when you have these, like, women, women, you know, men, men rules. Because it really interrupts the flow of your match. Right. Right, because it's like at at some point a woman or a man is going to get tagged in, and then whatever. Yeah, and now now we have to switch, and that right. pulls us out of the and narrative. It doesn't, and again, doesn't make together. any sense because if you've got the upper hand, why would you take out to somebody else and then have to bring in a fresh? Yeah. Anyhow, it is. So again, I'll say it: clusterfuck completely. Yeah. Match ends. Uh, Richter pins Medusa. Yes. And so. Oh, um, so then Medusa was the champion because then she won. We said Richter was the champion. No, I think she was. That's weird. Yeah, because it was, I, it, it was Richter had to be the champion. Okay. Because then the the ref through the everything. Well, there's like the weird miscommunication spot. Right. Typical thing. Um, the ref then gives the belts. Right. To the top guns, and that's where there's like a lot of lot more confusion, and also Medusa ends up. Kind of like going like because of the whole miscommunication, she really sells the whole angry with the bad company uh-huh. and Diamond uh, Dallas Page after that, which uh, to me it almost went on so long. I'm like, well, this is a little excessive. Like we get it, uh-huh. we can move on from this. But I think at that point nobody knew what was going on, right? And it was just like, okay, the Top Guns walk out with the belts, anyways. But then they cut a promo. Where's our belts? Bring our belts back. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. It's just like a complete. You're all going back to the same room anyway. And again, another match where the crowd is hemming and hawing and kind of booing and not into it so much. Well, I mean, but look who's got the charisma. Right. You know, it's it's Bad Company, who I loved. Um, I guess I should go back and watch more of them, but I thought they were the greatest thing with little Pat Tanaka and then Paul Diamond. No, it was good stuff. Who I guess, uh, in retrospect... Is kind of bad. Which one? Paul Diamond. Yeah. You know, when I become Max Moon. Right. Yay. He was Cato too, wasn't he? Yes. In the Orient Express. Yeah, because the Orient Express was. Was that was bad. Was bad company. Yeah. Repackaged as just like two Japanese. And I remember thinking that was funny because one time in the letters column of an after mag, like somebody wrote that they had met Cato from the Orient Express in the gym and gave him a lot of tips on how to lift weights and stuff like that. And just, I just wanted to, you know, yeah, it was just this, why is this in here? That's pretty great. Yeah. Like that's that's random. Right. Saw this mask guy. How'd you know it was him? Was he wearing the mask at the gym? Right. I saw this mask Asian. It was like, you're Kato, right? Yeah. Aren't you Canadian? Kimchi. (laughs) Sorry. Wrong, wrong mask. Sorry. Super destroyer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Hey there, podcast listeners. Uh, If you haven't guessed it, we lied. We lied to you at the beginning of this podcast. We told you we were going to do Super Clash 3 all in one sitting, but we've decided to break it up into two episodes uh, for your listening pleasure. So what that means next time you'll get more of the madness and the mayhem and the craziness and a little bit of the aftermath of what happens at probably one of the worst pay-per-views that has ever happened. So speaking for... Derek St. Holmes Esquire. I am your co-host, Jay Gilkay. 
We are Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. And we are heard exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. And we will see you next time when we bring you part two of Super Clash 3. Thank you.